The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. Before we begin, I need to apologize for the slow pace in which I've been releasing episodes. Between a computer breaking, the college year beginning, and organizational duties, I have not had as much time as I had planned to write, edit, record, and release episodes. I hope to pick up the pace once we arrive at the strike. Thank you for bearing with me. This episode is rather short. It didn't fit quite well with the previous episodes, but the role FDR and the New Deal play in setting up the 34 Teamster strike needs to be covered. Like Governor Floyd B. Olson, FDR plays a very mixed role in the story. He will appear now as one whose New Deal reluctantly encourages unionization efforts, and his administration's mediators will try to negotiate peace. And he will appear personally again near the end of our story as various parties appealed directly to the presidency to settle the strike. Thus, the administration helps set the conditions for the strike, but its mediators will attempt to bring order back to the city of Minneapolis. Following his inauguration in March 1933, and with the country continuing to reel from the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to bring balance back to the economy partially out of fear that the chaos would give rise to more radicalism among the nation's workers and farmers. This took the form of a series of major legislative acts now called the New Deal. We won't cover the entirety of the New Deal here. Instead, we will stick to labor law. Roosevelt called for a conference of governors, and while Minnesota's farmer labor governor Floyd B. Olson did not attend, he sent a message that made national headlines echoing his more radical pronouncements we covered in episode 3. He stated, quote, If the so-called depression deepens, I strongly recommend to you, Mr. President, that the government take over and operate the key industries of this country, put the people back to work. If necessary to relieve public suffering, the government should not hesitate to conscript wealth, end quote. Roosevelt was not prepared to go anywhere as far as Governor Olson's militant rhetoric urged. Instead, he passed reforms that he hoped would bring stability back to the system without giving in to the radical demands, such as conscription of wealth or the nationalization of industries. In June 1933, President Roosevelt and Congress passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, the NRA. Capping FDR's first 100 days, this law was designed to last for two years as a temporary measure to help restore the status quo of the capitalist system and prevent its collapse. Much of the law was dedicated to regulating business practices, although controversially suspended enforcement of antitrust law. It also created the Public Works Administration, which would provide some wage work for the unemployed. Most contentious was Section 7A, which recognized the right of workers to unionize and collectively bargain without interference from employers. Although FDR has come down to us in mainstream history as a friend of labor, he included this provision reluctantly in order to win support from the labor movement. He was worried that the Republicans' failures to resolve the economic situation 
was leading the country's rank and file to radicalism, that is, socialism, so FDR saw a need to compromise with labor. The New Deal was not meant to challenge capitalism, but to save it. And one of the challenges that capitalism faced was widespread working-class unrest. By the time this law passed, major strikes had already swept the nation, especially within the auto industry. A.J. Must, a leader of the 1934 auto light strike in Toledo, quoted an observer who stated, quote, Early in 1933, hell began to pop. Strike followed strike with bewildering rapidity. The long-exploited, two-patient auto slaves were getting tired of the game, end quote. This chaos allowed William Green of the AFL and John Lewis of the United Mine Workers to successfully pressure FDR to concede a compromise with labor and include Section 7A. Whether or not FDR wanted to include this legislation, the working class forced his hand. It was not handed down out of the kindness of his heart, but was included because of working class power and the necessity of the situation. Section 7A of the law was hailed by union leaders such as Daniel Tobin of the Teamsters, William Green of the AFL, and John Lewis of the United Mine Workers as Labor's Magna Carta or its Emancipation Proclamation. This is overblown to be sure. The Norris LaGuardia Act of 1932, passed under Hoover, had also recognized unions and in fact remains on the books today. But 7A did encourage further union organization. John Lewis's United Mine Workers gained 300,000 new members in two months, for example. 7A would also become a strong negotiating point by the 1934 Teamsters, so keep this law in mind. Section 7A of the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933 reads as follows, quote, Employees shall have the right to organize and bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing and shall be free from the interference, restraint, or coercion of employers, end quote. In his July 24th fireside chat, FDR addressed the nation's workers regarding the law. In it, he called for the workers to show patience, understanding, and cooperation. He said, quote, The workers of this country have rights under this law which cannot be taken from them, and nobody will be permitted to whittle them away. But, on the other hand, no aggression is now necessary to attain those rights. The whole country will be united to get them for you. The principle that applies to the employers applies to the workers as well, and I ask you workers to cooperate in the same spirit, end quote. FDR thus tried to use the language of cooperation and harmony, rights and laws, which we've seen before from the Citizens Alliance, mind you, to seduce workers from their so-called aggression, that is, strikes. The urge to civility ignored the question of power. It was one thing to have words printed on sheets of paper which stated that workers had the right to unionize without fear of being fired but it was another thing entirely for that to actually occur. Indeed, it was workers' aggression that had won them the right in the first place. Furthermore, the ACLU, yes, that ACLU, issued a report covering the time between the law's passage in June 1933 and the end of the year. The New York Times reported, quote, The methods of that era are used flagrantly to smash labor's efforts to organize despite the NRA. At no time has there been such widespread violations of workers' rights by injunctions, troops, private police, deputy sheriffs, labor spies, and vigilantes. More than 15 strikers have been killed, 200 injured and hundreds arrested since July 1st. More than 40 injunctions of sweeping character have been issued. 
Troops have been called out in half a dozen strike districts. Criminal syndicalist charges are being used against active strike leaders. The National Labor Board and its regional boards, set up under the NRA, have lacked the will or the power to overcome the defiance of employers. Labor's rights to meet, organize, and strike have been widely violated by employers who fear neither General Johnson nor Attorney General Cummings. Only where labor has been well organized and has struck with determination have its rights been respected. End quote. That is, passing a law that tossed a bone to the unions and the working class was not sufficient to combat the power of the employers. Given FDR's own lack of enthusiasm for Section 7A, it is no surprise that while unions began to grow with its help, the unions also continued to suffer at the hands of the capitalist class. Recall the 1917 statement from the Minnesota Railroad Brotherhood I quoted in Episode 3. Quote, The only real friend that labor can count on is itself. In times of strike, of industrial disputes of any kind, labor has to fight its own battles. Its so-called friends are not then forthcoming. End quote. Section 7A helped set the stage for the Teamsters' strike. The Teamsters would return to it repeatedly as the legal justification for why they were in the right for the Citizens' Alliance to recognize their union. The strike, FDR's so-called unnecessary aggression, on the other hand, would be the economic power and ultimate determiner that forced the Citizens' Alliance to concede to labor's demands. And we will see this become the case in our next episode, when we return to the city of Minneapolis and how it dealt with the Great Depression and the Teamsters' launch of their first strike of 1934, the February Whirlwind Strike. This is 1934, Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable, and thank you for listening.